All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. Spent some time at the PGA show last week and was able to meet David McClay Kidd. Uh, and we immediately started talking about him coming on the podcast. So this is a def- definitely a different look. This is the first ever architect uh, we've had on the podcast. And another one of our takeaways from the PGA show after uh, spending some time at the Callaway booth uh, was the buzz and the excitement over the new ChromeSoft golf ball Um one of the R&D guys actually gave us a kind of a walkthrough of the new material uh, called graphene. This is a Nobel Prize winning revolutionary carbon material. It's known as the world's lightest and strongest material. You can cover an entire football field in a thin layer of this material, and it will weigh less than a dime. Uh, so this, this demonstration definitely caught our attention. It's in the ChromeSoft and ChromeSoft X-Ball and it's an infused outer core with graphene, allowing them to engineer a thinner outer core and a significantly larger inner core. Uh, this means you're going to get a softer feel with less spin off the tee and more spin around the greens, unlike anything you've experienced before in a golf ball. And it's already been proven on tour. Sergio Garcia has won with it in his first event uh, with the Chrome Soft X. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm super pumped uh, to try this out in 2018. CallawayGolf.com slash ChromeSoft2018 for more on the ball that changed the ball. Let's get now to David McClellan. Play kid uh apologies on the audio on my end we switched from skype over to facetime to get because of some technical difficulties and uh, my mic settings were not turned on for facetime so it recorded through my macbook uh so my part of the audio is not perfect but uh i don't talk that much in it anyway so uh enjoy david mcclay kid really enjoyed this one and uh thanks for tuning in Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Uh, second podcast this week, welcoming in a guest I met, was lucky enough to meet last week at the PGA show. Uh, first of all, I, I have the first question I have to ask you is we, we the people need to understand the deal behind three names here. Mr. David McClay Kidd, there's no hyphen. Is there a hyphen? Can you please explain the three names? Uh, it's, it's not, as some people have thought, it's not me trying to build up my self-importance. It was... <laughs> McClay is my mother's maiden name, uh, and she was an only child. And so when my grandfather got ill uh, and my uh, mother is an only child, the name McClay would have uh, died out with him as the last male. Uh, And I'd been given that name as a middle name. And on my 21st birthday, as uh, a, a present to my grandparents, I had my name legally changed to put the McClay in as part of my surname so that if I had a son, which I do have, the name would pass on and not die out with my mother. I knew there had to be a good story behind that. That's, that is, that's a, that's a worthy one, but uh, yeah, that's for, all it was. It wasn't, it wasn't me trying to be uh, Robert Tyree Jones or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, for our listeners that are somehow not familiar, David is of course a uh, tremendous golf course architect uh, and I actually, before I started, you know, digging into your your uh, your entire portfolio, I'd played a lot more of your golf courses than I had even realized. But uh, uh, probably best known uh, for your work as the designer of Bandon Dunes. Um, but I'll, to set the scene, I want to kind of get some background into how you got into golf course design in the first place. I know it's a pretty tremendous story. The age at which you started working uh, on Bandon Dunes, but how did you, uh, what was your, your childhood like, I guess, growing up in golf, and how did you get into golf course architecture? Well, I was born and raised in Scotland, uh, and my father uh, got a job on the local golf club in the village that my parents come from when he was 14, uh, and he worked hard, and by the time he was in his early 20s, he was uh, a head greenkeeper uh, at Glasgow Golf Club, which is one of the oldest clubs in the world. Uh, and he is incredibly passionate about golf. He's still alive and very healthy. Uh, and I learned everything, most everything I know was through my father and his passion for the game. And he was a great, or is a great historian. He he did lots of studying on, on uh, old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris and the great triumvirate. And uh, his favorite was always braid and braid courses. And he taught me lots about uh, Colt as well. And and so this stuff was uh, 
permeated my childhood. The, the house was full of old dusty books from the 1800s that were golf annuals. Uh, he collected old plans that were drawn by these guys 100 years ago that he got from his friends in the golf business that were stuck in drawers for two generations. Uh, and so I was just surrounded by it. And I loved everything about golf and golf courses. Uh, I didn't find the maintenance of golf courses. Uh, it didn't enthrall me. You know, I did it from such a young age that as I got older and went to college, uh, I wanted to experience different things. So my father suggested I go work for a golf construction company. And I really loved that. I loved the fact that I could take everything I'd learned about maintenance and the history of golf design and actually implement it in construction and build these things from nothing. Uh, and that was really where I came at architecture from. You know, I, I came from a maintenance background. I experienced construction and I, I got to realize these design ideas. And so I pursued a, a, a career in design and construction. So what is what was your portfolio, I guess, or what was your resume like before uh, getting contracted to work on Bandon Dunes or before you even invited to see the land that would eventually become Bandon Dunes for the first time? How was how was I guess what, what, what would take us back to your early 20s? What would what did you have done at that point in your career? Not a whole lot. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I was like, uh, I think what Mike Kaiser saw was a a bit like a a, a a pony, right? You know, the 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 lineage was good, and that's what Mike was buying. Mike Kaiser, the owner of Bandages, he was buying a lineage that he knew my father. They're the same age. He really respected my father and my father's a passion for golf, real golf, uh, and so he figured that the apple wouldn't have fallen far from the tree, uh, and he hired me as the the, the young buck, buck version of my father, I guess. Uh, I hadn't done a whole lot. I'd worked, I'd left college at 21. Uh, I worked for uh, an architect in England called Howard Swan. I worked on a handful of uh, small regional projects with relatively slim budgets. Uh, in the field, actually designing and building them, there was really no contractor. We were building them ourselves. Uh, I then joined a big development firm and worked for them for another few years and learned about large-scale development projects and master planning and uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and somewhere in the mix of all of that, without getting into the minutia, I ended up meeting Mike. Uh, and my father came out with me the first few times, and the trips were really Mike and his friends and my father and I. Uh, as we figured out the routing for the first course at Bandon and where the clubhouse would go and the entry roads and the, the, the first thoughts on clubhouses and lodging and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that that basic, simple master plan that, that I thought up as a 26-year-old is basically what you see at Bandon Dunes today. Well, what is, before you had gotten, gotten the job, I think, uh, you know, was there any, A, was there, kind of competition to design that first course there and did you see the land before kind of agreeing to do the job or what was the, the process like in getting that all set up you know i i was working for uh, a development slash consultancy firm and they invited i was invited out my father and i to talk to mike and we got out there a week before he arrived and we wander around these sand dunes and to be honest they weren't sand dunes they were covered in pine trees and gorse bushes so you couldn't really see the real potential underneath it so we wandered around on this stuff and i thought you know wow what an opportunity this rich guy from chicago doesn't fully appreciate what he has uh and he obviously hasn't spoken to the the true greats in our business you know i, I seem to have snuck under the wire here <laughs> so you know maybe maybe through blind luck i could get the chance to do this uh, because of his lack of knowledge. Uh, and somewhere in the in the week that we were there, we met Shorty Dow, who was the caretaker of the land. And he showed me a pile of business cards of people that had already been on the site. And it had everybody. Everybody's name was, was in his hand on these business cards. So I quickly realized that 
I wasn't going to be sneaking under the wire on anything that that Mike was pretty sophisticated uh, and he wasn't going to be choosing me out of a lack of knowledge and so I for right or for wrong sort of took it took it as kind of an insult that you know why would this guy possibly hire a 26 year old who hasn't done anything and is son of a humble greenkeeper from Scotland you know there there's no way he's going to hire me uh, and so with the the bit between my teeth and a little bit of a chip on my shoulder I carried on through the week and conceptualized the first two golf courses that could be on the golf course uh, and when Mike when I eventually met Mike I explained my thinking and I told him in no uncertain terms well if you were to hire someone like me, you know, I wouldn't be putting the uh, the clubhouse out on the cliff edge, you know, because it's, you know, that's not where the Scottish or the Irish would ever put a clubhouse. We would have put it inland and we'd use the best land for golf. Uh, and we certainly wouldn't be covering it in cart paths and, uh, and allowing people to, to lazily drive carts around it. We'd make them walk because that's what golf is. You know, it's a, it's a interaction between you and nature. And so they should walk and you shouldn't put car paths in to even allow them the opportunity. Uh, and Mike's friends that were with him sort of stood there and shook their heads and, and kind of chuckled uh, because what I was saying was so insane. Uh, and uh, Mike said, thank you. And my father and I left. And as far as I was concerned, uh, I said my piece. I had won my self-respect, at least in my own head. Uh, and this guy from Chicago would probably go hire Jack Nicholas and build, uh, you know, a carted golf course with boring bunkers and a clubhouse out on the point and real estate behind it. And, and so another full links golf course would be constructed in America. But that's not what happened. You know, what happened was a few weeks later, Mike called back and said, did you believe all that stuff you said? Uh, and I said, yeah, I, I did. I, I believed every word of it. And he said, okay, you know, why don't you come back and, and spend a few more days on the site and work up your plan a little farther and we'll, we'll, we'll kick this down the road a little bit more and just see where it goes. And so then I realized that instead of uh, snubbing my client, I was actually preaching to the choir, but I would never have known it. So at that point, I came back and I kept pushing that the clubhouse shouldn't be on the, the water and there shouldn't be carts and the golf course should have rumpled and uneven fairways and uh, all the trees should come out and we should build a course that would look completely at home on the west coast of Scotland or Ireland 200 years ago. Uh, and that was preaching to the choir. As time went on, Mike uh, allowed me to continue down the design process and, and the first course was built. And the, the first course was really the course that, that had to knock down the barriers to get the, the American general public to accept a type of golf that, that most had never seen before. Right. So it sounds like you're almost working to your advantage was the fact that, you know, all these big names typically had a lot, um, I guess, a lot of influence and a lot of uh, resumes and examples of typical American golf courses that were being built. I'm sure there was architects, not necessarily just all from the States there in the running, but the fact that you were willing to do something different was so much in line with what Mike had envisioned. Um, I kind of, you know, it's easy to kind of look at Bannon Dunes now and see all of the the incredible golf courses along along that style and kind of thought process that have been built uh, in, since then. But kind of like you just alluded to, like breaking down the barrier. I'm curious how much did something like Sand Hills, which I think had just been built right around the time that you were first looking at the land, or maybe even started afterwards. How much did that kind of serve as a blueprint or a kind of example of, hey, you, it's possible to build great golf courses in very, very remote locations? Did that, did that, do you remember Sandhills having any kind of influence on Bandon? Sandhills had massive influence on Mike's opinion of what Bandon could be, but mm -hmm. I had none on mine because I, I had never seen Sandhills. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, Sandhills had only been open a couple of years at that point it, it, it had a hundred members you know it wasn't ranked number one at that point and if it was I wasn't aware of it uh, 
you know, Sandhills definitely was the very first one to break that barrier, but it did so in such a remote location and it was private. No one got to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it didn't really have any influence on me. I, I wasn't, when it's funny when you say, you know, Bandon uh, was different. It wasn't different. It wasn't different to me. Sure. It, Bandon, I was just doing what I knew to be golf from my childhood. You know, that, Bandon doesn't look any different to me than uh, the old course at St. Andrews or Macrahanish or Carnoustie or Turnbury. You know, there are so many features of those courses that exist at Bandon. There's very little of what I look at at Bandon that's tr- truly unique. And yet to a passionate golfer that had never traveled overseas, they arrived at Bandon. The first thing they, they see is the, the clubhouse isn't in the primo spot. Uh, they can't drive a car. There's not a flat lie out there. There's this old fescue grass that's wiry and tough. Uh, you know, there were so many boundaries broken for a traveling American golfer that were just the norm to a Scotsman. That's that's one of the big takeaways I had from spending a lot of time in Scotland last summer is just that like uh, taking what you guys call a buggy and what we call a golf cart is just an unheard of thing. Like it's the golf courses are set up just so much differently to be walked. And that's what kind of what I meant in that, you know, from an American standpoint, it was different to do this style of, you know, and that's why you, you were alluded to people kind of scoffing and laughing at, at no, the potential of no golf carts. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I grew up in the States. I just was used to always playing courses with cart paths near, near them and, and golf carts. You take them at, in between shots and you just, you don't really think about it until you realize what else is out there from a, that potential standpoint. But um, so what, all right. So you, you contracted to do the work. Did you have a design team at the time? I mean, there's one thing to kind of come up with the ideas for a golf course, but, you know, to put it into action and to build it, how at that age that you were at with your relative lack of experience, were you able to assemble a team to actually construct the thing? Well, I, you know, I, I worked for my father my whole childhood and he'd ever, he'd always built stuff himself, you know, with his greenkeeping team. Uh, and then when I left and went to college and joined a small architectural firm in England, we did the same thing. You know, we would uh, go hire equipment piece by piece and, uh, you know, maybe a contractor to do the irrigation system and we would build them ourselves. So I'd never really, as a, as a designer at least, I had never uh, hired a contractor. My involvement with a contractor was actually as an employee. I worked for Southern Golf, one of the big contracting firms in Europe uh, for 18 months. So I had plenty of experience in building golf courses. I, I knew how to, to actually construct them. So that didn't scare me. Uh, and Mike associated me with a couple of other people that helped me put together the resources I needed. Uh, to build the golf course. So I went down to the pub and, you know, or the bars in Bandon and found, you know, fishermen and loggers and cranberry growers that were uh, out of work. And, you know, one could drive a bulldozer and another could drive an excavator. And, and so we put our own little team together. You know, funny enough, a lot of those people then went on and became quite influential building golf courses for other people. Uh, you know, one of the guys that I found was this we hired Troy Russell, who was a fertilizer salesman, as the first superintendent on Bandon. And his brother, Tony Russell, was a local dairy farmer. We hired Tony and he used some of his farming equipment to do a lot of the final prep and grassing on Bandon dunes. He then went and worked on Pacific dunes. Then he went and worked on trails. And now he works doing a lot of shaping work for Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw. Wow, I've never heard. That's amazing. You just literally found people in pubs to 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 help you build a golf course. I mean, I think it's it's like I said, it's so easy to look at you know four courses plus the par three course and uh, there at Bannon and all the all the it, just to know that it started from nothing and that it, you know you're there's nothing there and you're finding people in local bars to help you build the golf course. That's incredible. Well, it was important to use people that didn't know what golf was mm-hmm. because. If I'd have hired an American golf contracting company, they would have come with uh, a mindset that might have been difficult to change. That makes sense. Yeah. And so it was easier to to hire people that had no idea because they didn't know what was right or wrong. They didn't have a, a preconceived idea of 
what a bunker should look like or a green or a fairway or so I, I could say hey you know just push that or okay that's good you know <laughs> it could be really loose uh, and over finishing is is an absolute enemy to minimalistic golf design you really have to try hard not to over finish and, and so when you when you saw the land for the first time was it really easy to envision building a course out there I know you had mentioned that that's kind of the challenges that are on the landscape but I mean could you have envisioned it turning out as good as it did? No. I mean, when we first, when Mike first bought the land, it was absolutely covered in uh, gorse, which is a, an invasive species in, in Oregon. And this gorse was anywhere from 10 to 20 feet deep. Uh, and it completely uh, flattened out the shapes that were underneath. It, it grew fairly short on the uh, tops of mounds and fairly deep in the hollows. Uh, and so it flattened everything out and you couldn't tell what was there. So in my first initial routings, we were clearing pathways with a, a little bulldozer so we could even walk the layout. Hmm. Uh, and it really wasn't until we had the site cleared that we could really plan accordingly. And, and we were clearing while we were building. So we built the the back nine first and the front nine still wasn't completely cleared. So some of those holes weren't even fully planned out right before we started building them. I remember hearing that in, a, in the book, there's books that have been literally a book that they sell in the pro shop there of the building of Bandon Dunes. But I remember hearing that the, the 12th hole at Bandon was the first hole built there, which is a par three that goes back out kind of towards the water. Was that kind of the hole that you based your routing on or why was that the, the first hole that was built? Well, when you build a golf course, uh, you don't build it in sequence. You know, mm -hmm. you don't start at one and build to 18. You build it based on a bunch of logistical issues. And those logistical issues could be things like where the irrigation water is coming from if you're doing a course in the desert. Or it could be where the major drains would be outletting if you're doing it somewhere where it rains a lot. So at Bandon Dunes, in order to have a construction process that was efficient, you would start at the lowest point on the golf course and work to the highest point. So the 12th green uh, was the obvious place to start. That's where one of the three drains that drains that golf course discharges. There's another one at 16 and another one at 17. And so that's the sequence of building. We, we built 12 and then 15 and then 16 and then 17. And then we worked back towards the clubhouse and then up towards the highest point, which is the third tees. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of golf courses, I think, in the States that kind of it either claim to be links courses or claim to be links style. I mean, it could be in the middle of Ohio. I know there's a golf course that's built in my hometown that, you know, it's it's called the Golf Club of Dublin and it's kind of trended after trying to be like a links style Irish course, but is of course not a links course. What is like the biggest difference between the links course you built at Bandon Dunes and what like a typical, maybe American style, links style course uh, is? Does that question make sense? Yeah, I get it. You know, the uh, the debate about the word links uh, and what it really means, you know, there, there you can go from one extreme to the other. Uh, you know, at one end of the spectrum, I would say if you've built a golf course and the whole golf course is on sand, there's an argument you could potentially call that links. But that would be at one end. At the other end, you know, it has to be on sand, uh, previously underwater, fescues, you know, all sorts of other requirements that would that would define it as the purest of links. So somewhere in between those two, you can debate it. But when you're in the middle of the country on heavy clay soil, driving a cart, and they told you it was a link style golf course, <laughs> I have a hard time believing you. <laughs> Is there anywhere else in the States that really even remotely compares from a Lynx perspective in your mind that you've seen? Yeah, lots of places. Okay. Lots. I what mean, are some I, examples? I, I, any course in the, the sand hills of Nebraska, I'm going to say that that is a very, very near Lynx experience. Even though you're a thousand miles from the nearest ocean and 3,000 feet in the air, uh, you're still playing over 
tight fescue on top of free draining sand and that makes for the ball to roll. And maybe that's the true nature of links is if, if the grass is firm and the surface is hard and the ball rolls, that's links golf. That's probably the simplest definition of it. Uh, and when you, I, I guess if I really was controversial, if you're playing golf at Pebble Beach and you're playing on Poanya uh, that's not got sand underneath and the ball leaves a pitch mark, are you really playing links golf? I'm yeah. not sure. Totally different kind of style. That's that's kind of the difference for me too, as well as you know, links just encouraging me to play along the ground instead of playing through the air is the is the biggest difference maker for me. What the technicality of the definitions, you know, that I can give or take that that or take or leave that. But uh, just courses that encourage you to play along the ground. I didn't realize. I mean, I've always loved golf. I didn't realize how much I loved golf until. I started playing those style of courses and then it makes kind of going back to aerial style courses just almost feel not even worth it to be honest after after uh, playing a bunch of those but you told a, you told a great story when we were at the PGA show about about what Tom Doak said to you uh, about Bandon Dunes uh, whether you're, you're still trying to figure out if it was a compliment or not I was hoping you could relay that story uh, well, the, the story I think you're uh, alluding to is uh, a couple of years after Pacific Dunes opened, uh, Tom and I were invited by Brad Klein at Golf Week to give a presentation to the Golf Week panelists. Uh, and at the end of our presentations, that was opened up for questions. And one of the questions asked to both of us was, if you have your time over again, what would you do different? And Tom had the mic. And so he proceeded to uh, talk about very subtle nuances uh, on Pacific Dunes that he may or may not have done slightly differently. You know, well, the third tee on the fourth hole, I maybe could have moved three more yards left and, and made a slightly different angle. You know, that kind of stuff. It was pretty nuanced. Uh, and after a while, he handed the mic back to me and I said bluntly, I'd have gone second. <laughs> and my point, although... Uh, intending to raise a laugh was pretty serious. You know, I, I spent the, the nine months that I, I was building Bandon and the, and the three or so years prior to that when Mike was working through the permitting, you know, pushing against convention. You know, Mike was the only one that, that believed my rhetoric. You know, everybody else that Mike brought thought Mike was mad and I was you know, probably dumb and naive. I mean, that's being maybe a little harsh, but somewhere in there was the truth. And so all the time, you know, even with uh, Kemper Sports, the managers, you know, they would come out and I'd be, I'd have these, you know, pot bunkers in the middle of fairways and huge rolling, spilling fairways. And they would look at them and say, you know, our our experience in public golf is this is not acceptable. Our Our public golfers do not like this. They want to ride a cart. They, if they hit the middle of the fairway, they want a nice flat lie. If they put it in a bunker 200 yards from the green, they want to be able to have some chance of recovery. Uh, and this golf course doesn't offer that. Uh, and so I was pushing at these boundaries all the time. I wanted to use fescue grasses on the greens. You know, why in the hell would you use these old style, thin, slow grasses? Uh, when you could use the latest bent grasses that, that are incredibly good at stopping an incoming shot, they, they putt so reliably and consistently. I mean, why would you want to do this? So I was fighting all of these preconceived ideas all the time. Uh, and then when Bandon was a success, Tom walked through an open door. Right. You know, there was none of that left. He could, he didn't have to waste time persuading anyone that these decisions that I had made were right. He was able to just plow on and be creative and do, you know, really, he could push to the next level and, and create golf holes that really pushed against convention with blind tee shots and tucked greens and uh, bunkering that had, you know, real Mackenzie-esque uh, wild shapes to them, giant uh, dunes that are completely exposed sand. There, there were so many new other things that he could do uh, that that I probably couldn't have done in the first go around. So, albeit a joke, I want. I really thought that going second gave an advantage. Uh, and 
following up on that, the the talk that you heard me give at the PGA was with Bill Coor. Hmm. Uh, there, Mike didn't give, indeed give me my chance because we went second behind Bill Coor at Sand Valley. Uh, and again, even though it was to a lesser extent, Bill had already invented the wheel. Uh, he'd done a number of things that worked really well, and I was able to just follow them. Uh, so along with that story about going second, you also mentioned something about what Tom said, a, a story Tom told you about arrows. Can you repeat that story? Because that fascinated me. Or quiver, um, quivers in your arrow, quivers. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, when I, when I was building the castle course at St. Andrews, uh, I was given a 220-acre potato field uh, to build it on. I mean, absolutely devoid of anything. No, not a contour on it, not a tree, nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. But it is at St. Andrews and it had a great view back into the, the old town and the East Sands. So I'm working at St. Andrews doing only the sixth 18 hole golf course there in 600 years uh, with a fantastic view, but on a devoid piece of land, heavy soils, no sand. Uh, and so 15 years after Bandon, uh, I'd learned a lot. I'd built a number of courses around the world. I had a, a very talented team of people around me. So we, uh, we employed every single skill we had to turn a flat potato field into uh, uh, an awe-inspiring golf course in our image. Uh, and I asked Tom to come have a look when we were about maybe a third of the way through. Uh, and... He, he was actually a little resistant at first. You know, I had to kind of twist his arm uh, to get him to come have a look and give me his thoughts. Uh, and he went and he had a look and he called me up and he said, you know, it's like when you did band and you, you really only had the one arrow in your quiver and you shot it, you know, straight and true. Uh, and when you, got to band, when you got to the castle course, you had a clutch of arrows and you're shooting them in every which direction. You know, there's just... Uh, it, it's like you just spewed every skill you'd learn out onto this one piece of land. Uh, and his point was that, you know, maybe I was, I was overcooking the, the soup and I needed to think about using fewer arrows better than lots of arrows in every direction. Uh, and that was probably good advice that I didn't take. That makes a lot of sense. I think, does it, are you able to kind of take feedback like that? And there was some of his feedback on the course is very public, obviously in his, in his confidential guide, he rated the course a zero, which just tip it, you know, people can confuse what the dope scale means. It means mostly just this course should not have been built for a myriad of reasons. And I think kind of the, the some of the factors you may have mentioned there uh, about the land probably contributed to him reaching that conclusion. I'm definitely not saying that course should not have been built, but is it easy or how hard is it, I guess, to take that kind of feedback and not take it personally? And does that like, affect your relationship with one of your peers like that? Well, I guess that's where I get to an impasse. You know, I, I was with Tom, I don't know, two months ago at Streamsong. Uh, and he and I, for the first time, talked about that zero. Uh, and I asked him, you know, what was it about? You know, what, what was the purpose of that? Uh, and he said, well, I was trying to help you. And I said, Tom, you got my number. You could have called me, you know, <laughs> key point, you know, scoring it as zero comes off as either childish uh, or uh, disrespectful. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I didn't really get it. I, I, if, if it was intended to sell more copies of the book, then it, it does him a disservice if it's intended to be a slight to me, you know, then that, that's unworthy of them. Uh, I, I didn't really get it. I didn't think it was necessary. Uh, I, I think that if he thought it was a zero, he'd have been better leaving it out of his book than creating controversy between two people that I hope history will uh, relate kindly to in our efforts to make golf more enjoyable. Uh, I, I didn't think that it was something worth doing. Uh, it brought up a bunch of negative attention uh, to him and I, uh, and it probably did him more harm than me. Does it? Do you think that a lot of the criticism that comes with it, how much can be tied to the fact that it is have has St. Andrews in the name? You know, St. Andrews is 
a controversial place. You know, it's just filled with controversy. The the thing that I, I knew going into the the seventh at St Andrews was it's a place where there are too many intellectuals in too small a space, uh, and that leads to some very strong held opinions. Uh, and so the whole way through the the pre construction of of the castle course, there was a lot of heated debate between the locals about whether the course should ever be built and uh, how much of the process was open to the public to review. Uh, there, there were all sorts of controversies. Uh, I wanted, to, as a Scotsman, as the son of a, a fairly well-known greenkeeper in Scotland, I wanted to be part of building a, a golf course at St Andrews. Who wouldn't? Uh, and if Tom felt that the golf course shouldn't have been built for numerous technical or political reasons, that's a lot different than scoring one of his peers a zero. You know, that, that those two things shouldn't have been related to one another. The course was built, uh, and whether it was politically right or wrong has nothing to do with his confidential review of a golf course, I wouldn't have thought. Now, did it hurt my feelings? Not particularly. Uh, I, I don't think that I was particularly hurt by it. Uh, you know, I've known Tom for 20 years, so I know that he can be pretty blunt. Uh, it, it didn't shock me. Uh, it caused a lot of questions. Uh, and even now, what, that book's been out for, what, two or three years? And I'm still answering questions <laughs> on it. No, I, I I figured I knew that you had. I just that that, that fascinates me, just because I I think I'd seen pictures of the two of you together at Streamsong uh, a couple months ago, and just wondered what how that how that falls out because I know that kind of in the in that business, especially you know there are some there are some rivalries within the business, but at the same time you guys have a history together, and you guys have you know designed courses on the same property and had a relationship. So I was just kind of curious how uh, how how that played out, but I think that uh, that kind of makes sense, but. Going back to uh, some things we again we talked about the PGA show was or uh, you had addressed that kind of after Bandon, I guess when you, when you designed Bandon you kind of described yourself as being I don't not in your own words but saying kind of young and dumb and that you kind of nailed that that first design without fully knowing what you were doing then you had mentioned you kind of got in your own head uh, kind of falling into some certain traps over designs over the few years so. In, in your own words, kind of what, what were you, what did you mean by, you know, as you learned more, you know, perhaps some of your design techniques became a bit more flawed? I, you know, I think what happened was when I was 20, in my late 20s, designing and building Bandon, I didn't know enough to get in my own way. Mm -hmm. So what I knew was this very simplistic view of golf on a beautiful landscape. And so that's what I executed at Bandon. You know, I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't in my head to build lakes and streams and fake mounding and uh, wild greens and complex grassing. And, you know, I, I just didn't know how to do it, much less have the desire to. Uh, and then as my career blossomed, uh, I had developers building these incredibly expensive projects with real estate involved and a desperate urge to get to win favor with the golf media. And so I was encouraged to create, be more creative and, and build things that, that uh, garnered more attention. Uh, and in so doing, you know, I, I maybe started to, uh, you know, cook these things a little harder than I had previously. Uh, you know, I, I spoke to a, a journalist the other day and I was I was making a similar point and he stopped me and he said, you know, none of these courses that you keep beating yourself up about are bad. They're mm -hmm. all really good courses. I've played them all. I love them all. You know, I don't understand why you keep uh, beating yourself up about them. And so I think I need to stop that. You <laughs> know, I, the, the two that, that I, I keep picking on would be the Castle course uh, in Scotland and Tethro here in Oregon. And yet both of those courses are extremely successful. They are, Tethro is fully subscribed and, and uh, does a vast amount of rounds as does the Castle course. So I don't think at any point in my career did I completely drop the ball. Uh, I, I maybe came under the ire of some sophisticated golf critics, 
But to the average golfer, they still love the look and playability of these courses. They may be a little harder. Uh, they might beat them up a little more. Uh, and I certainly am my own worst critic. And I, you know, I may take the advice of, of the chap I was talking to last week and stop beating myself up quite so badly because these courses are still successful. I totally agree. And it's, it's, you know, it, it's kind of a thing that we experience as well. The more people, you know, the more people that you reach or the more people that notice your work, just you're bound to receive more negative feedback, more positive and more negative. And you kind of can't help but start to, you know, hear the negative feedback and base what you do or say kind of in anticipation of negative feedback. For, so for somebody that works in such a such a public forum and having to, and I don't want to say having to answer to like top 100 lists and golf course critics and stuff, that's just got to be so difficult to balance like what you envision and what you would like to do versus knowing what, or knowing, I don't want to say knowing what people like, but that preconceived notion of some of the things you're talking about, like pot bunkers in the middle of fairways and things that just aren't normal in design. You have a vision for how that works, yet you know it might not be uh, received as as strongly as if you followed a traditional design. So was there kind of a turning point in getting back to trusting yourself in that regard? I mean, I remember, uh, or what, if, there is a, if there is a turning point, what is kind of the golf course where you felt like you were able to just block out all the noise and do what, exactly what you wanted to do? Uh, I think it was right around the beginning of the last uh, major recession, you know, 2008, 2009, you know, I, I, I built a number of courses that were uh, winning, you know, best new of the year. I was voted in the inaugural architect of the year in golf magazine. There, there were, if you looked at my business, I was achieving all sorts of things. But, you know, what I was hearing in the background of all of this uh, was the average golfer was saying, you know, I played the course, it beat me up, I didn't really have that much fun, I will probably won't come back anytime soon. Uh, and I heard that, you know, a few times, and that had a greater impact than anything the, the golf media or the magazines or the panelists could ever say. Uh, that made me realize that I had I'd lost the pulse of my audience. Uh, and that's ultimately the most important thing, right? I mean, we build golf courses to be enjoyed by the masses of players who play them. Uh, you know, for me to build a golf course that no one loves but me defeats the object completely. You know, a bit like a director making an absolutely horrible movie that he goes on uh, show after show and defends. Well, no one likes your movie, buddy. <laughs> it, it's a crappy movie. I'm sorry. I, I get it that you made it for all the right reasons and it was a, a passion project and a lifetime's work, but it sucks. So I didn't want to be that guy. I, I wanted to, to, to get the pulse of my audience and understand the things that they really, truly love and enjoy. And so back in 2009, I, I took my two closest colleagues, Casey Cranbuell and Nick Sean, and we went, we went back to Bandon Dunes. Neither of them were involved in the original building of Bandon. But I said to them, even though I built the first one, let's imagine I didn't and spend a few days here and play all the golf courses and really think about why is Bandon so popular? What, what makes it abandoned. And I don't want to talk about airy-fairy generic terms, you know, it's the vibe or, you know, it's the the history or, you know, I don't want, I want the details. What is it about this blow by blow that makes it popular? And so we took the four courses apart. We deconstructed them down to their individual ingredients. And we talked about what were the common themes between the courses and what lessons can we learn from that and take to our next project uh, and replicate? And so that's what we did. We talked incessantly for, and still do, about what is it about those courses that make them so popular? Uh, and we started down a path, a, a redirection, a very conscious redirection, down a path where instead of trying to pander to panelists and magazines and best new lists, the only person we're trying to pander to is the average golfer who's spending his hard-earned money and even more hard-earned time playing something that we've created. How do we get that guy 
to come off and say, oh, I want to do that again. That was so much fun. Hmm. No, I, I think that uh, I kind of I played one of your courses this past summer, Macrohandish Dunes, where it was kind of at a transition point for me is like I'm learning more about golf architecture and kind of really getting the lay of the land when it comes to Lynx courses. I become less enthralled with my own score and more about like how much fun I had with, you know, if I had a, you know, if I'm, let's say I'm out of play off the tee yet, I'm hitting, you know, a fifth shot as a chip shot and I get to use an awesome contour and it rolls up and I end up making double on the hole, but I got to play a really fun shot. I can really appreciate kind of the, the fun that comes in that. So an example of that, if I'd have played Macrohandish Dunes maybe three years ago, I don't think I would have understood because I would have looked at it and said, this is different. This is crazy. There's a lot of blind shots. Some of these land formations are insane. I played it this summer and I had an absolute blast because it had some of the most unique looks of golf holes I'd ever seen. So what was, uh, how did the, how did Macrohandish Dunes come about and what was your overall real design philosophy of that course? Well, Mac Dunes came about because I spent my entire childhood on those dunes playing on them as a kid. <laughs> my parents have had a summer home on that peninsula for three generations. So I spent a lot of time out there. And as my passion for golf increased as I got older, my dad would take me around Macrahanish Golf Club and he would point over at those dunes uh, to the north and say, you know, there's room for another two or three golf courses there, my son. And that always stuck in my head. So after I built Bandon, uh, I tried to encourage various uh, developers that I met to give me the money to build Macrohanish Dunes. And I never could uh, pull it together. Uh, and then someone else beat me to the punch, uh, Brian Keating and David Southworth. Uh, and they provided the, the money to, to get the permitting and then build the golf course. So that was, that was how it happened. What was the design intent? The design intent was just to get permission to build a golf course. <laughs> that piece of land is not regionally, not nationally, but internationally protected. It has some species there that grow nowhere else on planet Earth. Uh, and those species are very rare orchid bulbs that exist in the hollows between the dunes, between the highs. And so that piece of ground is incredibly fragile. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, the most important of which is, is the pyramidal orchid, which is the most beautiful flower. And so uh, it falls under uh, the designation of a site of special scientific interest, which means don't even think about it. So uh, when I first approached the, uh, the body that protects it, uh, which is uh, SNH, Scottish Natural History, uh, they basically said, don't even think about it, or Scottish Natural Heritage is the proper uh, title. So I, I tried over a number of years to get the uh, officials at, at SNH to understand that, that they want to protect that piece of land, but they don't have any power, they don't have any money. So their protection is to put this designation on it, and the designation allows it to be used in agriculture. And agriculture often isn't the best protection. The, the farmer is looking at uh, winter grazing for a herd of cattle. He's looking at storing uh, spent machinery. Uh, he's looking at who knows what else. You know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have the uh, conservation protection as the foremost uh, objective in his mind. He's a farmer making a living off the land. I tried to persuade them that the golf course uh, only wants to be there because of the high value of the land. And if we could find a way to allow the golf course to coexist with the most fragile and important parts of the land, the golf course would provide the armor, the protection for it forever. That's and so over time, I managed to persuade SNH that that was indeed uh, a legitimate objective that the golf course would provide the armor to protect the fragile parts forever. And so we basically agreed that a golf course could be built, but really it wasn't built. They, they allowed us to create flat spots for tees and do some very minimal grading on the exact perimeter of a putting green. Uh, they allowed us to take existing scars and enlarge them a little bit into bunkers 
And that's all we could do. So there was no real construction of a golf course. We didn't build a golf course. The fairways that you played on were the same fairways that sheep were grazing on the day before we started building in inverted commas a golf course. That's amazing. Was this was I mean, we, we hear a lot about these areas of special scientific interest. And and obviously the Trump course in Aberdeen uh, was eventually built in this area. And there's another project uh, potentially, you know, going through the debate process at the moment called Cool Links uh, that uh, Bill Corr and, uh, and Ben Crenshaw are working on potentially up in Dornick. Was this the first course to be built on this special scientific interest land? It's the only one so far. Uh, is, the, is, the, is the Aberdeen course not technically on the land? It's just around the land then? I don't think it was on a triple SI. Okay. Uh, I'd have to check that, but I don't think so. Uh, and, you know, it, when we were building Mac Dunes and Trump was building a Aber, Trump Aberdeen, it was a true David and Goliath because SNH were dealing with both. And on one hand, they had a very willing partner that was trying to get a win-win-win for all involved. And on the other hand, they had Trump Aberdeen that, that was uh, looking to achieve their objective at the cost of uh, any other parameter that was being set. So uh, SNH got a bloody nose in Aberdeen uh, and got a kiss on the cheek at Magranis Dunes. <laughs> and you could argue, you know, well, which one came out better? And some would say, well, you know, the Trump course came out better than Macaranis Dunes. And that may well be true. Uh, I would hope that when I built golf courses in Scotland, and I've done three of them, uh, it's it's a game that you're playing for the long haul, not a short term. There's, there's no real estate on these golf courses. And Europeans, and particularly the Scots, think in terms of uh, eons, you know, decades, generations, centuries. I would like to think that these golf courses will only truly reach their best long, long after I'm dead and gone. And at that point, the fact that we work so hard to protect all of the flora and fauna at Macrahanish hopefully will pay dividends in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. Yeah, I do know there's some serious questions about the sustainability of uh, of the Trump course in Aberdeen, but uh, so it kind of is refreshing to hear the the minimalist, uh, I guess, attitude that in its truest form. It sounds like within Macrahanish Dunes, but uh, we're going on 50 minutes here, and I'm, I had plans to talk to you plenty about uh, about your new project here at Mammoth Dunes. I know that was kind of the purpose of the uh, of the conference there uh, in Orlando last week, but. Uh, seems to be some very strong excitement about it. You seem to have a lot of energy uh, dedicated towards, you know, it, it, you kind of lit up when talking about Mammoth Dunes and your excitement for it. So uh, taking some, uh, I mean, I've not seen it. A lot of people listening to this have not seen it. Can, how, what's your best way of describing what Mammoth Dunes is going to look like when it opens up this uh, this spring? You know, everything I was telling you earlier about figuring out what it is that golfers really like and enjoy, you know, Mammoth Dunes is our latest attempt to tick all of those boxes to create a, a visually inspiring uh, feast for the eyes uh, and a golf course where every golfer feels like they can be aggressive. They can really go after it and, and try and score on the golf course because the, uh, the teeth are off to the sides and it's not overly penal. You know, I, I didn't, you know, one of the things we, we, we figured out in our analysis was, you know, there's too much uh, given to defending par. Uh, and I think that golf course architects have been sold kind of a lie to themselves that they, they try and defend par so hard and they succeed so well that the average golfer can make bogeys and double bogeys all day long. And that feels like failure. You know, that doesn't feel that good. So, Par is actually something that the average golfer feels like, ah, oh, you know, I didn't do bad. I didn't do great, but I didn't do bad. Uh, and so I've kind of tried to think up golf holes where if you want to play pretty conservative golf, I'm not going to put up too many defenses against par. I'm going to kind of let you have that if you can execute a couple or three reasonably good shots. Where the teeth start to come is when you start to cut corners and try and make bogeys and uh, sorry, 
birdies and eagles. Now the defenses start to appear, and that could lead to bogeys and double bogeys. So Sand Valley is hugely wide, but the tight lines are there. A good golfer is going to quickly see that, okay, that fairway is 100 yards wide, but to get in position A, I have to hit a five-yard wide slot and avoid not going in the trouble. And so I'm going to be really, really thrilled after three years of working on it to have Mammoth Dunes open to the public and allow passionate golfers to go out there and try and take her apart. I know they won't, but they're going to think they can. <laughs> what is, uh, for? I've never been to the site. I, I've heard, I heard descriptions of it, but, you know, Mike Kaiser's project obviously was banned in dunes. It had part of the main appeal was its coastal location. What is the appeal of going to central Wisconsin to build a golf resort and build two golf courses on it? Well, it looks every time you climb up one of these dunes in the middle of Wisconsin, you'd expect an ocean to be on the other side. So the fact that it doesn't have an ocean is more of a surprise than an, than an expectation. Uh, when you're building the on this beautiful sand, pure white sand. If you were to do that on the coast, anywhere in the world really, you can't really have too much open sand because the wind at the coast causes mayhem with acres and acres of open sand, which is why Pine Valley has a look all unto itself. And so Mike's two, the courses that he holds in highest regard on the planet Earth are Royal County Down and Pine Valley. And Royal County Down, in his head, was his model for everything at Bandon Dunes. Anything that had any glimpse of Royal County Down made Mike very excited. And at Sand Valley, anything that had a smattering of Pine Valley made Mike very excited. So I would say for him, and he may not agree, that Bandon Dunes is, a, is his ode to Royal County Down and Sand Valley is his ode to Pine Valley. And I did everything I could to take our new commitment to our own design ethos, but do it in a way that has the the look and feel of Pine Valley. And although many of your listeners have never seen or never will see Pine Valley, uh, at Mammoth Dunes, they get that opportunity. Very nice. Um, I, we d unfortunately don't have a time to talk about every one of your designs, but I, I Gamble Sands is one that, you know, in, in preparing for this, I was very intrigued by, and to be honest, didn't know a lot about going into it, uh, is one of your designs in Washington that is opened, I believe in 2014 is very highly acclaimed. Uh, what is, what can you tell us kind of about what you saw out there on that land to be able to make a golf course out of and what that golf course is like? Well, it, it sits on 300 feet of sand above the Columbia River. So it's a common theme I'm noticing here. <laughs> yeah, the minute you minute the minute you give a golf course designer with with any nouns uh, a sand site, you know special things can happen. Uh, and if it's a sand site with a really cool view of water, then the the key ingredients are there, and that's what we had. We had a really cool view of the water, all in sand, no real estate, a de uh, a developer that wanted to build a pure golf course. Uh, he was also willing to let us use fescue grasses because it's in the Pacific Northwest. So it had all the same ingredients as Bandon Dunes without the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it, but it did have the Columbia River instead. Uh, it wasn't a hard site, a beautiful rolling site on sand, fescue grasses, an owner that gets it. You know, those are the dream jobs for a golf course designer. Uh, and even though it's remote, three hours from Seattle, the Pacific Northwesterners love golf. You know, the, the vast majority of golfers at Bandon Dunes are from the Pacific Northwest. So the, the opportunity to do something that, that's of that ilk, uh, but it doesn't rain or blow a gale, is pretty appealing to people from Portland and Seattle and Boise and Salem and uh, from all around the Pacific Northwest. Great. I'll let you out of here. I got a few kind of short, uh, shorter questions, but you know, you'd mentioned some courses that you kind of grew up roaming the grounds of and learning from, but what are some of your favorite courses in the world that you look to specifically for architectural influence? Oh God. I mean, that, that could take another hour. Uh, you know, Sand Hills, when I finally got there, I was mesmerized. You know, I, I thought, wow, this is incredible. Uh, 
the the strategy there is all diagonals. You know, everything's set up on diagonals. Big greens, small greens, ridges you play over, blind shots, uh, all sorts of strategy there. That's just a, a it's just an art form. Uh, courses that have been constructed from nothing, Kings Barns. You know, of all the courses I've ever seen that were built on a relatively weak site, you know, Kyle took a site that, that wasn't what you see today and he created a world-class Lynx golf course from nothing. You know, absolute genius, work of art. Uh, I have nothing but respect for Kyle and, and what he created there. Uh, the old courses, you know, I got to play Chicago Golf Club last summer for the first time. A really, really weak site. I mean, if someone showed me that site today, I would bet you that Tom Doak would turn that site down. Flat site, not sand, boring trees around it, nothing. It's not even in Chicago. There's nothing on that site that tells you that a great golf course could have been built other than genius architecture. And so it is. It's genius. So all of these things from fantastic sites to fantastic architecture to amazing engineering. Uh, I love it all. You know, I, I love looking at the, the time I live in with the architects who are my peers and look at what they're capable of and I marvel. And I, I uh, you know, when the lights are out at night, I think I'm not worthy, but I hope that others will say I am. How much influence uh, have other architects had on your style and who are, who are the main architects you would say that you draw the most inspiration from? You know, I was thinking about it the other night. You know, I, I think back to my childhood and my father uh, talking uh, in uh, like it was poetry about the great triumvirate. Uh, and although the modern architects uh, of my era are not players, I wonder whether history would, would be willing to put a great triumvirate or, or maybe it's more than three together. Uh, you know, the, the work that Tom Doak does, the work that Bill Coor does, and now Gil Hans, are, are, it's absolutely stunning, you know, and I think that there, there are others waiting in the wings, be it uh, Jim Urbina, Mike DeVries, uh, Michael Clayton. You know, there's some really amazing architecture and passionate people out there. It's exciting times to be in this business, even though there aren't that many projects being built. The ones that are are so much better than what was being done 20 years ago. It is exciting. It's 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 tough to keep up keep up with even all the great stuff that's going in and uh, there's just you know there's all obviously a ton of historical places we we'd all love to visit and then all these new great ones keep popping up. It's it's fascinating. On that note, what are uh, what are the what are the plans for for you and your company and your design group uh, in the immediate future? What's uh, what's your 2018 2019 look like? Oh, it's pretty exciting. We're, we've got a pretty good slate of projects coming up. We're looking at doing uh, a little more work overseas. Uh, whether it's in the Middle East or the Caribbean. Uh, we're looking at a second course at Gamble Sands. Uh, we may even be doing another project for Mike Kaiser somewhere. Uh, so there's there's a bunch of stuff coming down the line. Uh, there's no shortage of really cool projects, but we're always looking for more. So if someone's got a site with sand, <laughs> as flat as a billiard table, call us up. We'll take it. I did see some some sites in north on the North Island of New Zealand, uh, way up north, uh, even further up north than uh, than where Terra Edie is. That as soon as I drove by them, I was like, somebody could do something with this. So was that up at ninety mile beach by chance? Yeah, right around up. Well, no, it was on the opposite coast of. Uh, wow. It was on the east coast actually, but um, I have no idea. I I am so far from qualified to determine whether or not land is good for a golf course, but I uh, did see some stuff there that caught my eye. So um, last, very last question. What is it, Do you have a favorite hole on the course that you've built, your favorite hole that you've ever built? Oh, that is tough. You know, <laughs> I, I guess most people would probably point right at the 16th at Bandon Dunes. It's the, the key point on the whole resort is probably 16 at Bandon Dunes. And that might be chiseled into my headstone and, you know, 50 years time, hopefully. Uh, but for me, it's hard to take credit for something like that because, you know, nature created 99% of that hole and I just turned it into a golf hole rather than uh, at the coolest point in Oregon. Uh, some holes I get a huge kick out of where we created something from nothing. You know, the second at Gamble Sands, which I see in magazines all the time, you know, Casey Crambule and I dreamt that up. That wasn't there. And we thought that hole up and then we built it. 
Uh, and the players who play it absolutely love it. It's one of the most talked about. So things like that uh, can, for an architect, I get the biggest kick out of doing something unexpected and creating something far beyond its original potential. And so 16 doesn't tick that box at Bandon Dunes, but two at Gamble Sands would. That's a good answer. And I'll finally let you go on that one. So thank you, David, for the time. That was a lot of fun. That Thanks, hour Chris. flew by. I've actually never, you're the first architect to ever be on the podcast. I'm always, I'm always afraid that I'm very underqualified to have these conversations. But uh, thank you for entertaining me and the listeners. And uh, that was a lot of fun. That's my pleasure. When will you uh, publish this? Oh, it'll go out probably tomorrow, so Wednesday. So people will get right all over it. All right. I'll retweet it as soon as I see it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, David, and uh, hopefully we'll speak soon. All right. Th- thanks, Chris. See you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect 